Section 59 of For the Term of His Natural Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Ashworth. For the Term of His Natural Life by Marcus Clark. Book 4, Chapter 3. Extracted from the Diary of the Reverend James North. May the 12th. Landed today at Norfolk Island, and have been introduced to my new abode, situated some eleven hundred miles from Sydney. A solitary rock in the tropical ocean, the island seems indeed a fit place of banishment. It is about seven miles long and four broad. The most remarkable natural object is, of course, the Norfolk Island pine, which rears its stately head a hundred feet above the surrounding forest. The appearance of the place is very wild and beautiful bringing to my mind the description of the romantic islands of the Pacific, which old geographers dwell upon so fondly. Lemon, lime, and guava trees abound. Also oranges, grapes, figs, bananas, peaches, pomegranates, and pineapples. The climate just now is hot and muggy. The approach to Kingstown, as the barracks and huts are called, is properly difficult. A long low reef, probably originally a portion of the barren rocks of Nepean and Phillip Islands, which rise east and west of the settlement, fronts the bay and obstructs the entrance of vessels. We were landed in boats through an opening in this reef, and our vessel stands on and off within signalling distance. The surf washes almost against the walls of the military roadway that leads to the barracks. The social aspect of the place fills me with horror. There seems neither discipline nor order. On our way to the Commandant's house we passed a low dilapidated building where men were grinding maize, and at the sight of us they commenced whistling, hooting and shouting, using the most disgusting language. Three warders were near, but no attempt was made to check this unseemly exhibition. May the 14th. I sit down to write with as much reluctance as though I were about to relate my experience of a journey through a sewer. First to the prisoners' barracks, which stand on an area of about three acres surrounded by a lofty wall. A road runs between this wall and the sea. The barracks are three stories high and hold 790 men. Let me remark here that there are more than 2,000 men on the island. There are 22 wards in this place. Each ward runs the depth of the building, viz. 18 feet and in consequence is simply a funnel for hot or cold air to blow through. When the ward is filled, the men's heads lie under the windows. The largest ward contains a hundred men, the smallest fifteen. They sleep in hammocks, slung close to each other as on board ship, in two lines with a passage down the centre. There is a wardsman to each ward. He is selected by the prisoners, and is generally a man of the worst character. He is supposed to keep order, but of course he never attempts to do so. Indeed, as he is locked up in the ward every night from six o'clock in the evening until sunrise, without light, it is possible that he might get maltreated did he make himself obnoxious. The barracks look upon the barrack square, which is filled with lounging prisoners. The windows of the hospital ward also look upon barrack square, and the prisoners are in constant communication with the patients. The hospital is a low stone building capable of containing about twenty men and faces the beach. I placed my hands on the wall and found it damp. An ulcerous prisoner said the dampness was owing to the heavy surf constantly rolling so close beneath the building. 
There are two jails, the old and the new. The old jail stands near the sea, close to the landing-place. Outside it, at the door, is the gallows. I touched it as I passed in. This engine is the first thing which greets the eyes of a newly arrived prisoner. The new jail is barely completed, is of pentagonal shape, and has eighteen radiating cells of a pattern approved by some wiseacre in England, who thinks that to prevent a man from seeing his fellow men is not the way to drive him mad. In the old jail are twenty-four prisoners, all heavily ironed, awaiting trial by the visiting commission from Hobart Town. Some of these poor ruffians, having committed their offences just after the last sitting of the commission, have already been in jail upwards of eleven months. At six o'clock we saw the men mustered. I read prayers before the muster, and was surprised to find that some of the prisoners attended, while some strolled about the yard, whistling, singing, and joking. The muster is a farce. The prisoners are not mustered outside, and then marched to their wards, but they rush into the barracks indiscriminately, and place themselves dressed or undressed in their hammocks. A convict sub-overseer then calls out the names, and somebody replies. If an answer is returned to each name, all is considered right. The lights are taken away, and save for a few minutes at eight o'clock, when the good-conduct men are let in, the ruffians are left to their own devices until morning. Knowing what I know of the customs of the convicts, my heart sickens when I in imagination put myself in the place of a newly transported man, plunged from six at night until daybreak into that fetid den of worse than wild beasts. May the 15th. There is a place enclosed between high walls adjoining the convict barracks called the lumber yard. This is where the prisoners mess. It is roofed on two sides and contains tables and benches. Six hundred men can mess here, perhaps, but as seven hundred are always driven into it, it follows that the weakest men are compelled to sit on the ground. A more disorderly sight than this yard at meal-times I never beheld. The cook-houses are adjoining it, and the men bake their meal-bread there. Outside the cook-house door the firewood is piled, and fires are made in all directions on the ground, round which sit the prisoners, frying their rations of fresh pork, baking their hominy cakes, chatting, and even smoking. The lumber-yard is a sort of Alsatia, to which the hunted prisoner retires. I don't think the boldest constable on the island would venture into that place to pick out a man from the seven hundred. If he did go in, I don't think he would come out again alive. May the 16th. A sub-overseer, a man named Hankey, had been talking to me. He says that there are some forty of the oldest and worst prisoners who form what he calls the ring, and that the members of this ring are bound by oath to support each other, and to revenge the punishment of any of their number. In proof of his assertions he instanced two cases of English prisoners who had refused to join in some crime, and had informed the commandant of the proceedings of the ring. They were found in the morning strangled in their hammocks. An inquiry was held, but not a man out of the ninety in the ward would speak a word. I dread the task that is before me. How can I attempt to preach piety and morality to these men? How can I attempt even to save the less villainous? May the 17th. Visited the wards today, and returned in despair. The condition of things is worse than I expected. It is not to be written. The newly arrived English prisoners, and some of their histories are most touching, 
are insulted by the language and demeanour of the hardened miscreants who are the refuse of Port Arthur and Cockatoo Island. The vilest crimes are perpetrated as jests. These creatures who openly defy authority, whose language and conduct is such as was never before seen or heard out of Bedlam. There are men who are known to have murdered their companions, and who boast of it. With these the English farm labourer, the riotous and ignorant mechanic, the victim of perjury or mistake, are indiscriminately herded. With them are mixed Chinamen from Hong Kong, the Aborigines of New Holland, West Indian blacks, Greeks, Kaffirs and Malays, soldiers for desertion, idiots, madmen, pig-stealers and pickpockets. The dreadful place seems set apart for all that is hideous and vile in our common nature. In its recklessness, its insubordination, its filth and its despair, it realises to my mind the popular notion of hell. May the 21st. Entered today officially upon my duties as religious instructor at the settlement. An occurrence took place this morning which shows the dangerous condition of the ring. I accompanied Mr. Pounce to the lumber yard, and on our entry we observed a man in the crowd round the cookhouse deliberately smoking. The chief constable of the island, my old friend Troke of Port Arthur, seeing that this exhibition attracted Pounce's notice, pointed out the man to an assistant. The assistant, Jacob Gimblet, advanced and desired the prisoner to surrender his pipe. The man plunged his hands into his pockets, and with a gesture of the most profound contempt, walked away to that part of the mess-shed where the ring congregate. "'Take the scoundrel to jail!' cried Troke. No one moved, but the man at the gate that leads through the carpenter's shop into the barracks called to us to come out, saying that the prisoners would never suffer the man to be taken. Pounce, however, with more determination than I gave him credit for, kept his ground, and insisted that so flagrant a breach of discipline should not be suffered to pass unnoticed. Thus urged, Mr. Troke pushed through the crowd, and made for the spot whither the man had withdrawn himself. The yard was buzzing like a disturbed hive, and I momentarily expected that a rush would be made upon us. In a few moments the prisoner appeared, attended by, rather than in the custody of, the chief constable of the island. He advanced to the unlucky assistant constable, who was standing close to me, and asked, "'What have you ordered me to jail for?' The man made some reply, advising him to go quietly, when the convict raised his fist and deliberately felled the man to the ground. "'You had better retire, gentlemen,' said Troke. "'I see them getting out their knives.' We made for the gate, and the crowd closed in like a sea upon the two constables. I fully expected murder. But in a few moments Troke and Gimblet appeared, borne along by a mass of men, dusty but unharmed, and having the convict between them. He sulkily raised a hand as he passed me, either to rectify the position of his straw hat, or to offer a tardy apology. A more wanton, unprovoked, and flagrant outrage than that of which this man was guilty I never witnessed. It is customary for the old dogs, as the experienced convicts are called, to use the most opprobrious language to their officers, and to this a deaf ear is usually turned. But I never before saw a man wantonly strike a constable. I fancy that the act was done out of bravado. Troke informed me that the man's name is Rufus Dawes, and that he is the leader of the ring, and considered the worst man on the island. That to secure him, he, Troke, was obliged to use the language of expostulation and that, but for the presence of an officer accredited by His Excellency, 
he dared not have acted as he had done. This is the same man, then, whom I injured at Port Arthur. Seven years of discipline don't seem to have done him much good. His sentence is life, a lifetime in this place. Troke says that he was the terror of Port Arthur, and that they sent him here when a weeding of the prisoners was made. He has been here four years. Poor wretch. May the 24th. After prayers I saw Dawes. He was confined in the old jail, and seven others were in the cell with him. He came out at my request and stood leaning against the doorpost. He was much changed from the man I remember. Seven years ago he was a stalwart, upright, handsome man. He has become a beetle-browed, sullen, slouching ruffian. His hair is grey, though he cannot be more than forty years of age, and his frame has lost that just proportion of parts which once made him almost graceful. His face has also grown like other convict faces. How hideously alike they all are! and save for his black eyes and a peculiar trick he had of compressing his lips, I should not have recognized him. How habitual sin and misery suffice to brutalize the human face divine! I said but little, for the other prisoners were listening, eager as it appeared to me, to witness my discomfiture. It is evident that Rufus Dawes had been accustomed to meet the ministrations of my predecessors with insolence. I spoke to him for a few minutes, only saying how foolish it was to rebel against an authority superior in strength to himself. He did not answer, and the only emotion he evinced during the interview was when I reminded him that we had met before. He shrugged one shoulder, as if in pain or anger, and seemed about to speak, but casting his eyes upon the group in the cell, relapsed into silence again. I must get speech with him alone. One can do nothing with a man if seven other devils worse than himself are locked up with him. I sent for Hanky and asked him about cells. He says that the jail is crowded to suffocation. Solitary confinement is a mere name. There are six men, each sentenced to solitary confinement, in a cell together. The cell is called the nunnery. It is small, and the six men were naked to the waist when I entered, the perspiration pouring in streams off their naked bodies. It is disgusting to write of such things. June the 26th. Pounce has departed in the Lady Franklin for Hobart Town, and it is rumoured that we are to have a new commandant. The Lady Franklin is commanded by an old man named Blunt, a protégé of Frere's, and a fellow to whom I have taken one of my inexplicable and unreasoning dislikes. Saw Rufus Dawes this morning. He continues sullen and morose. His papers are very bad. He is perpetually up for punishment. I am informed that he and a man named Eastwood, nicknamed Jackie Jackie, glory in being the leaders of the ring, and that they openly avow themselves weary of life. Can it be that the unmerited flogging which the poor creature got at Port Arthur has aided, with other sufferings, to bring him to this horrible state of mind? It is quite possible. O oh, James North, remember your own crime and pray heaven to let you redeem one soul at least, to plead for your own at the judgment seat. June the 30th. I took a holiday this afternoon, and walked in the direction of Mount Pitt. The island lay at my feet, like, as sings Mrs. Frere's favourite poet, a summer isle of Eden, lying in dark purple sphere of sea. Sophocles has the same idea in the Philoctetes, but I can't quote it. Note. I measured a pine twenty-three feet in circumference. 
I followed a little brook that runs from the hills and winds through thick undergrowths of creeper and blossom until it reaches a lovely valley surrounded by lofty trees whose branches, linked together by the luxurious grapevine, form an arching bower of verdure. Here stands the ruin of an old hut, formerly inhabited by the early settlers. Lemons, figs, and guavas are thick, while amid the shrub and cane a large convolvulus is entwined, and stars the green with its purple and crimson flowers. I sat down here and had a smoke. It seems that the former occupant of my rooms at the settlement read French, for in searching for a book to bring with me, I never walk without a book, I found and pocketed a volume of Balzac. It proved to be a portion of the Vie Privée series, and I stumbled upon a story called La Fausse Maîtresse. With calm belief in the Paris of his imagination, where Marcus was a politician, Nucingen a banker, Gobseck a money-lender, and Vautrin a candidate for some such place as this. Balzac introduces me to a Pole by name Paz, who, loving the wife of his friend, devotes himself to watch over her happiness and her husband's interest. The husband gambles and is profligate. Paz informs the wife that the leanness which hazard and debauchery have caused to the domestic exchequer is due to his extravagance, the husband having lent him money. She does not believe, and Paz feigns an intrigue with a circus rider in order to lull all suspicions. She says to her adored spouse, Get rid of this extravagant friend. Away with him. He is a profligate, a gambler, a drunkard. Paz finally departs, and when he has gone, the lady finds out the poor Pole's worth. The story does not end satisfactorily. Balzac was too great a master of his art for that. In real life, the curtain never falls on a comfortably finished drama. The play goes on eternally. I have been thinking of the story all evening. A man who loves his friend's wife and devotes his energies to increase her happiness by concealing from her her husband's follies. Surely none but Balzac would have hit upon such a notion. A man who loves his friend's wife. Asmodeus, I write no more. I have ceased to converse with thee for so long that I blush to confess all that I have in my heart. I will not confess it, so that shall suffice. End of Book 4, Chapter 3